Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and even controversial topics facing our society. We always aim to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. However, our goal isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to build a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that we can address them together. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. Since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. tradition of biting off more than we can chew and not realizing it until we've already got a mouthful. We're back this week with part four of our three-part series on white nationalism, evangelical Christianity, and Donald Trump. So far, we've talked about nationalism and how in America it took on a white and Christian context. We've talked about how evangelicals got so involved with politics, and we've talked about what the Trump voter base looked like and cared about in 2016. So this week, we are going to try to answer the million-dollar question, how on earth did a man like Donald Trump win and keep the vote of the deeply religious evangelical population? What did evangelical leaders at the time have to say about him, and how did his religious supporters justify his body behavior? What were the narratives circling in the conservative Christian community about Trump and the Republican Party? And did, as our listener implied, did that campaign season mark a change in the perspective and everyday behavior of evangelicals? I need to continue reading. Before we (laughs) do that, uh, we have to address the elephant in the room. Uh, At this point, you literally cannot internet without hearing about the unprecedented leak at the U.S. Supreme Court, which revealed a draft opinion that would, if enacted as written, overturn Roe v. Wade. Right now, the information available to the public is preliminary, but it's still enough to cause some celebration, uh, a lot more outrage, and protests of all kinds. Yeah, honestly, the situation is an absolute mess. Uh, We went back and forth in a late night group chat trying to decide if and how we were going to talk about this on the show. But ultimately, we decided to wait. Not for lack of wanting, mind you. We have so many thoughts and feelings and our friends and loved ones have concerns and questions. There's so freaking much that we want to talk about. But we also want to make sure that we're not just reacting to the big feelings surrounding the story. There's so much depth and history to this topic, so many moving pieces and implications to consider. We have to take the time to do this our way. And we will, we promise. Sooner than later, you've probably got another series coming your way. (laughs) Right? It will probably exceed the overall estimated episode count as well. Yeah, no, that's what we do around here. Um, Because we know what we want to talk about. But we also want to hear from you. 
especially those of you who are new to the show with this series. What do you think is missing from the conversation? Where is there space for nuance that isn't being honored? What questions do you have that the current coverage isn't answering? Because as much as we want to talk about what interests us, the purpose of this show is to help everyone have these hard conversations using good information and reason as the platform for moving forward together. We usually plug our website at the end of the show, but this feels like a great time to let anyone listening know that you can send us a note directly through the contact form at firesidebreakdowns.com. Let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about, or if you have any questions about Roe v. Wade or the conversation on abortion in general. And since we know that this is an incredibly sensitive topic for so many people, you can be confident that we'll respect your privacy if you ask. We won't say your name or even read your question directly if you don't want us to. But we do want to hear from you, no matter where you stand. That's it. Let's talk about this complicated topic that we have decided to, to try to tackle. Um, so we want to start with how did Trump win the white evangelical base? In the last episode, we talked through what the evangelical voter base looked like on a demographic level in 2016. We know that they were predominantly white, non-urban, and middle income. Their core concerns going into the election cycle revolved around protecting and preserving what was important to them, their economic security and the identities they associated either consciously and or subconsciously with being American. They were looking for someone who they thought would stand up to the establishment uh, or the elites yes. uh, that they believed were responsible for the growing precariousness of the stability they found in those identities. And they believed the increasingly conservative Republican Party was their best chance of finding that champion. But when Donald Trump emerged <laughs> as a candidate <laughs> and evangelical voters threw the weight of their support behind him, it's safe to say uh -huh. much of the world was uh, shook. shook, shook, shooketh. According to a survey by the Pew Research Center, 79% of evangelicals in 2020 believed that it's at least somewhat important to have a president that shares your religious beliefs. 81% said that president should have some religious beliefs. And 97% said the president should live a moral, ethical life. But um, that's not at all what Donald Trump presented to the world before he set his sights on the presidency. Yeah, case in point, in 2016, two thirds of evangelicals claimed that a candidate's position on abortion would have a lot of impact on which candidate they chose. But going into that election cycle previously, Trump was, in his own words, very pro-choice. Um, the phrase he actually used was, until very recently. So we can't assert that his position changed for the campaign or uh, at some point in the not too distant past prior to the campaign. We, we can't tell which one it was, but it was at least until very recently. Early on in his campaign, he also explicitly expressed broader positions on sexual and gender identity issues that led MSNBC, which is fairly liberal, 
to suggest that he might be 2016's most LGBT-friendly Republican. He'd even noted that he supported amending the 1964 Civil Rights Act to outlaw discrimination based on sexual orientation, something that nearly half of evangelicals at the time opposed. I do want to point out, being the most LGBT-friendly Republican in the 2016 Republican field, I mean, it might be comparable to being like the most delicious 30-day-old moldy sandwich. Like, right, just right. because it's the best doesn't mean it's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The implication there is not that he was um, by any means an ally to the LGBTQ community, um, but that is a moniker that by all expected patterns of behavior should have driven evangelicals to a different candidate. Right. Even his rigid positioning on immigration, which included mass deportations and the construction of a, a separation wall along the southern border, didn't entirely square with evangelicals' professed views. Some evangelicals are clearly sympathetic to that stance, but 62% of evangelicals at the time supported finding a way to allow unauthorized immigrants to stay in the United States. Trump also favored legalizing all drugs, something most evangelicals oppose. And I also find very interesting, given how frequently he uses that as sort of an attack on people he doesn't like. Right. Um, like drug use and, and, and ref references that. Uh, basically, there wasn't much that seemed to be in alignment. And if we fast forward a bit to the 2020 campaign season and look at some of the data there, we can see that white evangelicals didn't think phrases like morally upstanding or honest describe Trump very well. So even outside of campaign issues, there's a schism between the morals of white evangelicals and the way they view Trump. And yet, <laughs> the man still holds an outsized appeal with this group. Yeah, this appeal with the religious right really threw and continues to throw Right, it's weird. <laughs> like, it, it, it feels like it's been so long that I don't know how we can continue to be surprised, and yet. And yet. Right. It throws a wrench into many of the long-held beliefs about evangelical voters. This group that had long prided itself on representing the moral majority seemed willing to compromise their standards on personal morality in order to achieve certain political goals. Historically, conservative Christian voters made a strong showing of supporting candidates that represented our country's historically Christian perspective. News outlets regularly reported on that trend. One 2008 interview with a 26-year-old pilot from India who immigrated to the United States in 2000 pointed out that it can be hard for those who don't identify as Christian to feel valued by presidential candidates. The interviewee, Tejas Carve, said that he understands why the candidates stress their commitment to Christianity, but it leaves him with a sense of exclusion. He said, I think it's geared more towards Christians because that's the majority. It's incomprehensible for them, Americans, to have a candidate who's not Christian. Politicians on both sides of the aisle regularly use their faith as a campaign platform. But then in walked Donald Trump 
brazen and bold and at the beginning of the process unashamed of his sordid history. And they seemed to fall for him, like hard and fast, because he promised he could help them regain what they thought they had lost. Evangelicals easily hand-waved Trump's idiosyncrasies with their beliefs, their values. During a, a September 2016 meeting with about a dozen influential figures of, of the religious right, Trump professed, I don't know the Bible as well as some of the other people, meaning the other candidates, and relayed a story about the first time he met Mike Pence, detailing how Pence asked Trump, will you bow your head and pray? To which Trump responded, Excuse me? Trump explained his answer to the religious leaders by saying explicitly he just wasn't used to it. He wasn't used to prayer. Yet near the end of the meeting, Dallas megachurch pastor Robert Jeffress said, I'm not voting for Trump to be the teacher of my third grader Sunday school class. That's not what he's running for. I believe it is imperative that we do everything we can to turn people out to vote. During our conversation about the history of evangelical activism in politics, we talked about the issues that galvanized the base and drew them into the lobbying world, desegregation and economic protections for Christian schools. The emergence of Christian conservatives as a force in Republican politics traces back to the moral majority movement of the 1970s, led by Reverend Jerry Falwell Sr., who helped put Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush into office. But the generation that thrived during that era has since lost a lot of political clout. Republican nominations were going to more moderate candidates, while the American mainstream embraced same-sex marriage and abortion rights and multiculturalism and a much more secular mindset. When Trump emerged as a candidate in 2015, they were drawn to his vitriol against their perception of the state of society in America. He called out the liberal politicians that advocated for policies that they felt violated their Christian morality. He ranted against the media that they believed was forcing these secular beliefs in their faces every day. And he demanded that America take a stand against the immigrants and minorities that seemed to be taking a more prominent place in society. For many, that was enough to seal the deal, regardless of their personal religion. But... There was also a deliberate attempt on Trump's part to court the evangelical voter base. As early as 2011, he was appearing on televangelist TV shows, building relationships with leaders in that space, and learning what to say and what not to say to win their favor. Whether or not he was playing a long game at the time, he recognized the political power the group carried and had begun to leverage it long before most of us realized what was happening. Now, it's no secret that Trump's candidacy and the support he was earning from the Christian right caused quite a divide among evangelical leaders at the time. Uh, revered women's minister Beth Moore caused an uproar when she spoke out on Twitter against the male evangelical leaders who were waving off Trump's statements about groping women and shared her solidarity with women who had been objectified and abused in similar ways. Al Mohler, the uh, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said during the campaign that if he were to support Trump, he would have to apologize to Bill Clinton, who he called out for sexual immorality in the 90s. 
and official statements made by large evangelical groups made it clear that their opinions and Trump's did not align. But other leaders, like Jerry Falwell Jr., formed a fast allegiance with Trump. Falwell Jr. stuck by his side through biblical misfires, like calling 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians, and his comments about groping women. And he remained staunchly pro-Trump, despite withering criticism from people who might have otherwise been his allies. Some even believed that God had anointed Trump to lead during this time. They told biblical stories of how God used prostitutes and womanizers and tax collectors and murderers to further the cause of his kingdom and wondered why Trump should be any different. Evangelical leader Robert Reed, who began building his relationship with Trump in 2011, when his political ambitions were just budding, said in an interview, God must have quite a sense of humor to have brought evangelicals and Donald Trump together. Sometimes the most unlikely people become our staunchest defenders, and he certainly has. This division between leaders really raised a significant question that hadn't been asked in the public forum before. Who really speaks for the evangelical worldview? I want to talk about that in a second, but I also want to mention (laughs) that. So there's this perception that Trump was anointed, right? Or that Trump was selected by God. Right. Okay. You know what? Honestly, probably can find a Bible verse. It's probably in Romans. And by probably, mm-hmm. I mean, it is literally in Romans that's, that that basically speaks about how um, people on earth, Christians should be uh, subject to earthly governance. They should pay attention to it. Right. But it explicitly says that it is due to the fact that though the 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 people who are in power were are are placed there according to God's plan right so that it, it essentially means like don't rebel against your government because God put them there for a reason right so okay i'm okay sure if you want to believe that i guess i haven't really thought out the full implications of it but the thing is this verse has been used to defend conservative leaders by Christians, by, uh, by evangelicals specifically, like a lot, mm-hmm. but it, it never gets trotted out for Democrats and, or, 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 or liberal leaders. Right. And it's like, you have to, it, it is a, is a perfect microcosm of the problem of selectively interpreting Bible or applying biblical principles to the world around you because the Bible never makes a distinction about right. good leader versus bad leader about somebody who supports God's plan God's plan or somebody who upholds Christian values mm-hmm. and somebody who doesn't right it right. never says anything about that it's just like hey respect the governments <laughs> that man has constructed because God has basically anointed all of these people because that is part of his plan. So that in and of itself is the perfect example for highlighting the not mental schism. I couldn't think of this phrase last week either. It is a cognitive dissonance. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Still cognitive dissonance. Um, that you have to have in order to hold this belief that Trump was anointed, but Obama wasn't. Right. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I heard it. I've heard so many mental gymnastics around that particular passage of scripture and then the others that they kind of pull out of context to support it. Um, and I, I've heard everything from a reluctant call for people to pray for President Obama because, you know, he's the leader that God has placed above us, but not in a way that like would be pray for him to be successful, more like pray for his ever loving soul or. Um, right. Or, or pray that he realizes God's you know, right. guidance or, or something like that. I've like heard, pray that he corrects his behavior. Right. Is what it boils down to. Pray for pray for his salvation, essentially, or for him yeah. to have a life-changing moment or whatever. Um, I've heard it extrapolated out to make the case that, that that applies to godly leaders, right? And that when our leaders are not godly, when they're not um, advocating for policies or things that we know to be in God's law, it's our duty to fight against that. Granted, I don't think that they're talking this at that point in time when I was hearing these conversations, they were not talking about, you know, overthrowing the government. Um, but and we'll talk about this, you know, in the fifth episode of our three part series, um, we're talking about 2020. You can see how that snowballs. Yeah, that particular that specific interpretation snowballs. Right. And I, I just, hmm, mm -hmm. hmm, mm -hmm. just it, like as we were writing this, I was like, man, like, come on, it's, it's, right. you don't get to pick and choose, but picking and choosing is so much a part of the, the church that I grew up in, frankly, yeah. you know, like, I, we don't have time to get into this. We don't, but like. They're like, Old Testament says homosexuality is a sin in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which I have issues of that particular interpretation as well. Same. But these same people are eating like cheeseburgers and wearing fabrics of blended materials and not obeying other Old Testament mm -hmm. laws. They've just selectively chosen the interpretation of one story and disregarded the others that are inconvenient. And I'm not saying anything new. Like this is a very common right. observation that has been made. I'm just highlighting it because while we often hear about it in the conversation about um, same-sex marriage or, well, really that's the one I hear about it most. Like it applies here in this conversation about the functioning of the government and the Christian role under a secular government. Mm -hmm. Back to what we were talking about, though, which was these these evangelical leaders. Yeah, um, we are we are asking like, who really speaks for the evangelical worldview? And the answer is, well, uh, mm. nobody. <laughs> They're kind of like Antifa, if you think about it. I just like making that comparison because I know someone out there is going to like get really mad at me for doing it. Um, Stirring but the pot. I mean, like, there's no singular leader. No. There's no singular voice for Antifa, just as there's no singular voice for the evangelical movement in America. It's not Billy Graham or Franklin Graham now. It's it's not um, this Jeffries, uh, Jeffress guy. It's not Jerry Falwell Jr., because there are significant splits from each of their statements mm -hmm. by any any given group within Christ, uh, yeah. evangelical Christians. So while there was this rift among evangelical leaders, because they didn't all agree with each other, 
most of most of whom supported Ted Cruz strongly until the primaries were over and Trump won the nomination. Whoops. Mm-hmm. Um, the everyday evangelical voter didn't really seem to be as torn. To quote Falwell Jr., only the evangelical leadership was divided on Trump. And this is a great place to side trail a little bit more and talk about Cruz, one of the other candidates in the 2016 race that was playing hard for the evangelical vote. Cruz seemed a likely ally, a likely ally to the group, in all honesty. Um, his father was an evangelical pastor who believed and passionately repeated the importance of aligning one's vote with one's faith exhorting every member of the body of Christ to vote according to the word of God. Or the alternative could be the destruction of America. So vote like God would vote or America will be gone. Right. For those of you who have not grown up in the Christian church, the body of Christ. (laughs) Yeah, good call. Good call. Yeah, it literally means the church going the members of the church, not the church going population, the members of the church. And the church is not a building, as many right. people think it is. It is the group of people who go to the building, right? Yes. So the body of Christ is basically short or it's the long way of saying Christians. Yes. Um, and the, I, I guess the word of God is, is probably widely enough understood culturally but it basically just means the the guidance that is handed down to christians via the bible yes but like only the specific protestant canon of the bible um well right 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 not the book of mormon not the apocrypha that some sects of the catholic church um incorporate not the pseudepigrapha which some uh sects that are a little bit closer to Judaism incorporate and certainly not the rabbinical interpretations of the uh, Old Testament. It's just that one specific Protestant canon. If it's not, if it's not the King James Bible, well, okay. So it, in uh, <laughs> and even that leads to to dispute, right? In the Pentecost and a lot of the the more um, modern Pentecostal groups, it's the NIV or. Yeah. Uh, the the new the, international version or the new american standard bible american standard. Um, um, all of these are different interpret again so much context the new here living, yeah the new living bible that one's a little bit like too that. fluid a little too um modern speak open to interpretation but again yeah. if you don't have the context new for living these translation acronism acronyms that we're throwing at you these are all different um, translations and interpretations of the scrolls that they found in the desert that they put together and call the Bible. Um, different people have translated Only some them. of the scrolls. Only yes. some of the scrolls, some. not all of the scrolls. God, you guys, just there's so there's so much context. Anyway, yeah, uh, these are just all. If you want a history of the development of the Bible, just let us know. We'll gladly research and bring oh, that God. to you. Oh God, it's that one's. It is a particular favorite of mine. So please, somebody ask for that. Yeah, uh, this is why I like having Robin as my co-host. By the way, because she's just whipping out words like pseudepocryphal, and I just Pseudo- learned that one. Pigrapha. Oh, excuse me. Pseudopigrapha. Apocrypha. Apocryphal texts and then pseudopigraphal texts. Um, Did I mention that I had an antiquities major for a really long time? (laughs) Moving on. 
So either we we vote like God has commanded us to vote in the Bible or America specifically, not the world, America specifically will be destroyed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> again, because God again, only cares about America, guys. Well, it is because America has been entrusted to us as Christians and it is ours to protect and uphold. It's that custodial relationship that we talked about 19 episodes ago. Somewhere back there. Yeah. Right. Cruz, which is who we were talking about, um, Cruz ended up spending a significant portion of his run up to the primaries, uh, pointing out Trump's moral failures and previously liberal mindsets. He even tried to draw on the base's mistrust of the media by suggesting that there was a media conspiracy to elect Trump. My, how the turntables have turned. Right. Uh, but none of that, none of that seemed to hit the right note. Yeah. What seemed to matter more to this voter base was the difference in their policies on several key issues. And it wasn't even the issues. It was the extremity of their positions. As Sarah Palin so delicately put it when she uh, publicly cast her support for Trump during the primaries, our candidate is ballsy enough to put those issues on the table. Those issues other candidates have wanted to duck and run from. And what were those issues? Well, one of those was banning Muslim immigrants from coming to the United States. Trump proposed an almost total ban on Muslim immigrants, calling it a national security issue. Cruz disagreed very strongly with that idea, suggesting that we limit immigration uh, from only those countries where ISIS and Al-Qaeda were dominant at the time. But Robin, didn't they explicitly say it wasn't a Muslim ban? And weren't there other countries on that list that weren't predominantly Muslim? And weren't there predominantly Muslim countries that weren't included on that list? Yes. There were, but they, yes. And there, there were. There are so many rationalizations around this that, I mean, that like that's its own topic. The point here, though, the point of bringing this one up is not to debate the validity of that ban or even to make the point that that particular policy position was anything other than nationalistic, anything other than what it was. The point here is that Cruz also felt like it was important to limit immigration from countries where we knew that there were active and significant threats to American national security. Trump was like, nah, screw it. All of them. Right. And not only that, but the deliberate subtext of the the countries that were announced was to imply that was to imply the banning of Muslims. And the argument that it wasn't a Muslim ban only came out after people started discussing the predominantly Muslim focus of this ban. Right. And it's it's like it's it would be cynical of me to assume this, but assume it I will. This is not factual. This is my assumption. But it feels to me after looking back on it and reading about it and and how the that list, the countries included on that list and the countries that were excluded on that list, it feels like the countries that were excluded or the other countries that were included that weren't Muslim were basically fig leaves to sort right. of 
disguise the rest of it. And a lot of the countries that weren't included on this list that are predominantly Muslim were also very heavily dependent on we america are very heavily dependent on those countries right for various things so it's like mm, yeah okay. <laughs> sorry right sidetrack yeah no like that, that's an important sidetrack another place that they uh differed slightly was on government surveillance of certain individuals um Cruz at one point voted to curb government collection of phone and computer records as part of counterterrorism efforts, a proactive collection, not uh, retroactive based on any sort of active um, investigation. Trump wanted to reinstate those surveillance policies, saying that national security trumps privacy. He said, I have always come down on the side of security. To me, it is the most important um, and it's not a direct quote, but the the CBS News piece that I pulled it from added on the end, even if it means encroaching on the Bill of Rights. Hmm. Right to privacy. Kind of a big deal right now. Hmm. Hmm. Seems like a completely different uh, thought process. Anyway, yeah. the uh, one more issue, one of the big issues that apparently Trump cared about and Cruz didn't, for example, uh, was immigration on the southern border. So while both candidates advocated strongly for a strong barrier on the border with Mexico and deporting those who are in the United States illegally, Cruz focused his immigration conversations on Trump's pre-campaign softness on the issue. Trump, on the other hand, raised the conversation to a fever pitch. He called it one of the most important issues of the campaign. He accused Mexican immigrants of being rapists and drug dealers and a drain on American economic and social systems. And he vowed to make Mexico pay for the wall between us. Essentially, Trump went hard after the key narratives we talked about in our last episode. When you layer these policy positions on top of the Christian rhetoric he was using all over the campaign trail, it becomes much easier to see how he appealed directly to the undercurrent of white Christian nationalism. Exactly. And once it became clear that the choice for president would come down to Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, attention very quickly turned from Trump's character to Clinton's. Many voices that railed against Trump during the primaries quieted when he secured the nomination. And voices like Falwell and Reid rose to highlight the risk that a liberal agenda like Clinton's would pose to their Christian morals and to their political priorities. They pointed out Trump's business record and his promises to the workers being displaced by the others and his Ooh. progressive Sorry, shift. It's the others. I know, right? And his progressive shift from socially, uh, like, liberal positions to, ant like, nope. And they pointed out his progressive shift from socially liberal positions to anti-abortion and pro-religious freedom rhetoric. And again, I put religious freedom in quotes because it means a different thing to uh, conservative Christians than it does to other people. So it's in mm. quotes. And... Those leaders tried to make the case that the persona that he showed on the campaign trail had softened. His comments about women and Mexicans and Muslims and the inner city, they said, were not reflective of who he truly was. I've seen a lot of change in him in the last year or two. He's a different man, Jerry Falwell Jr. said. 
He said, I believe everybody is redeemable. And I think Donald Trump has been positively influenced by the American public that he's interacted with over the past year. Their arguments worked, clearly. (laughs) And since one of the goals of this series is to tease out how white evangelicals justified their dogged support of Trump, I think that's where we're going next. Let's take a look at that question. As Trump himself asked, why do they love me? You'll have to ask them, but they do. They do love me. God, the image that conjures in my head is just like, yeah, moving on. This one, this one is a little complicated for us to describe mainly because we don't like, we don't support Trump. So trying to, 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 to square that circle as people who were raised in uh, evangelical sort of circles (laughs) (laughs) and did not support Trump. It's, it's, this one's weird because it involves significant mental gymnastics As we've already discussed, there aren't a lot of overlaps between large portions of Trump's political campaign and morals and the goals and ideals claimed by white evangelicals. We we also discussed how the other option in the 2016 campaign failed to make a compelling argument to evangelicals, leaving a perception of one candidate actively lashing themselves to the evangelical movement, despite what I consider obvious flaws, and another candidate who appeared disconnected from evangelicals and was painted to stand against matters that evangelicals find important. This is likely a crucial factor for why they supported Trump, maybe the most crucial factor. At baseline, without any additional consideration, he was the lesser of two evils. As author and speaker Rachel Held Evans described it in October of 2016, I was at a Christian apologetics conference and every time her name would come up, everyone would boo. A friend of mine said, Christians aren't allowed to say bitch, but they make an exception for Hillary. She was the first woman I remember being described as a feminazi. A 2016 Washington Post ABC News poll put numbers to the evangelical aversion to Clinton. 60% of evangelical voters believed Clinton did not have the personality or temperament to be president. If you're just talking about favorability, not temperament, which what the fuck even is that? <laughs> it's it. You know what that is. I know. It sounds a whole lot like you're prettier when you smile. of white evangelicals held an unfavorable view of Clinton, while just 55% of the public overall felt the same way. So still not great numbers, really. I mean, like, it's hard to argue that Hillary Clinton was very many people's favorite. Right. But the evangelical voters did not like her a whole lot more than the normal voters. I'm going to just... Yeah, I think that tracks. Yeah. No, it's fine. It's fine. 72% of evangelicals said that she wasn't honest or trustworthy. Now, remember, very few white evangelicals thought Trump was honest. But his numbers were still better than Clinton's. On paper, it didn't make much sense. Trump is a thrice married, twice divorced, philandering, demonstrable liar who built casinos and made widely publicized bigoted remarks, called people offensive names, and otherwise exhibited behavior most of the people I went to church with would condemn as sinful. Right. 
We can give you sources on all of those claims if you really want us to. <laughs> I think we even talk about them in previous episodes. There's so many. We've talked about Trump so many times. So many times. Clinton, on the other hand, was a church-going, united Methodist with long ties to leaders in the evangelical community who arguably displayed Christ-like patience in staying in a marriage with an admitted adulterer, a trait that was praised in my church, the staying, the staying, right. not the adultery, right. for the record. For better or for worse is a big deal, very important phrase. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Clinton actually taught Sunday school and she attended weekly prayer breakfasts as a senator. Like this is a woman that on paper is highly involved in the evangelical movement and and like a a great example of an active member of the church. Mm-hmm. But those factors were overshadowed by her public life and what she had come to represent. Clinton symbolized many factors that ran against evangelical beliefs, abortion rights advocacy, feminism, and a rejection of biblical ideas of femininity and womanhood. And on top of it all, on top of all of that, she was a bright, flashing, neon reminder (laughs) of evangelicals' perceived loss of the culture war with the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. Yeah. This battle against the Clintons was no small affair either. Evangelicals had stood in in opposition to the Clintons for more than 20 years by the time of the 2016 election. As Michael Ware, in charge of religious outreach for Obama's campaign, summed it up, it's pretty complicated psychologically to have opposed Hillary for 20 years and then to make some kind of a switch because of her opponent. Those 20 years of opposition left an indelible mark. Deborah Fikes used to be on the board of the National Association of Evangelicals. She stepped down from that position in 2016, right before she announced her endorsement of Hillary Clinton. And after endorsing Clinton, she began to get messages condemning her for her support. According to Fikes, Hillary had become so tightly linked to the cause of abortion rights that it was as if Clinton personally was responsible for babies being aborted. It's like it's her own personal responsibility. I was told I was supporting a daughter of Satan and that I had the blood of 60 million babies on my hands. That's a messed up shit. That's that's dark. Like, I tried to think of some way to lighten that little section up because, oof. But like I just nothing feels appropriate. No. <laughs> um I just can't imagine getting that sort of like we get some we catch some shade from people for yeah. this podcast, you know? A but like bit. that is next level. Right. Ah, whatever. Evangelical voters believed that the moral choice between Clinton and Clinton and Trump was clear. They had no other option, and that allowed them to divest themselves from the cognitive dissonance of supporting a candidate whose morality did not align with their own by disclaiming their attachment to morality as a qualifying characteristic and looking for ways in which his policies made up for that lack. Eric Mitajas, a radio show host and vocal Trump supporter, said as much. He said, to suggest that people who are voting for Trump are ratifying the worst of his behavior is simply not logical. 
Trump supporters interviewed on the campaign trail took the same tone. You're voting for a president. You're not necessarily voting for a pastor, said Les McNiff, a retired human resources executive at an Oklahoma City Trump rally. He's not necessarily orthodox, but I like the fact that he's strong. I personally heard this sentiment iterated multiple times in my own discussions leading up to the 2016 election. I think it highlights how the statements of evangelical leaders such as Robert Jeffress create the permission structures religious voted religious voters needed to vote for Trump. Yeah, I, I heard that too. And I was like, I was always flabbergasted when they said that. Because again, growing up in the church, it was so often stressed how important it was to 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 look for Christ-like leaders, mm-hmm. right? And to and to support Christ-like leaders. And then it went out the window as soon as as soon as Trump started campaigning. Yeah, this I think Arguably this is before, but we haven't written this out yet, but this is a really important place to highlight that the issue that that we're trying to draw attention to is not that evangelical voters decided to vote for a candidate based on his policies. That is not the problem. We, I mean, I disagree with a lot of the policies, but that is the nature of politics, right? The issue is that until that point, they had made a very significant show of holding everyone else accountable for the moral failures of the candidates that they supported, right? Of making it the biggest issue, that huge percentage that says my presidential candidate should share my religious beliefs. But then when they were presented with a candidate who appeared to share their religious beliefs but did not have the policy alignment or a candidate who absolutely did not share their morality but aligned with the policies that they wanted to see, they made a quick switch and then didn't acknowledge it. That's, yeah. That is the crux of this, this problem. And it's leaving those of us on the outside who knew these people, who grew up with these people, with this sense of whiplash. Right. And frankly, like betrayal, honestly, because the hypocrisy was such that, or is such, that it makes you question everything that you were taught, that you experienced growing up. Like, how could you throw all of these important lessons out the window for this? Right. Linda Sharp, an elementary school teacher, said, he's made moral choices that are not stellar, but I lay that against his business plan or the economic growth for America, and I choose that. I don't know that Trump is the person to bring God back into our country, but I think if we don't, we'll have much bigger problems, said another rally attendee. You're getting the theme here. As part of his defense of evangelical support of Trump, Falwell once said, all the social issues, traditional family values, abortion, are moot if ISIS blows up some of our cities or if the borders are not fortified. Rank-and-file evangelicals are smarter than many of the leaders. They are trying to save the country and maybe vote on social issues next time. Greg Keller, a former executive director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, agreed with this perspective. He said, social conservatives are taking a look at Trump and saying he's not with me on all these issues. But the overall larger imperative for us is to tear down this system that has not served us for a very long time. 
In the end, the research seems to support the conclusion that we drew earlier, that evangelical voters were willing to bet on Trump, despite his own demonstrated character misalignments, for two very closely related reasons. The first, because he promised to champion their fight for a nation that catered to their culturally white Christian interests. And I'm saying that it is, I'm saying it. They wanted a candidate that would cater to their culturally white Christian interests. Secondly, he wasn't Hillary Clinton. (laughs) After the Access Hollywood video came out, where Trump brags about how being rich allows him to grab women by their genitalia and get away with no, it. No, no, I'm no. not saying it. I, I wrote hate it. that word. I, I will say it. You I will say it. it I hate that because word. Because I hate that it gets edited all the time because it lets him off the hook. I just refuse to say it personally. That's fine. I'll say it. But I wrote it because I want people to remember that he said this and it wasn't like it wasn't bleeped out in real life or there wasn't a cutesy word that replaced it he literally said that being rich being famous allows him to grab women by the pussy and get away with it that's what he said it's disgusting robert jeffers commented while the comments are lewd offensive and indefensible they are not enough to make me vote for hillary clinton To say Trump's comments disqualify him from being president assumes that Hillary Clinton is more moral than Donald Trump. A wild take. A wild take. Wild. This perfect storm of culture war and Clinton's existence created the conditions to allow Trump to win the white evangelical vote, to dominate that vote. Dominate. Despite their differences. Though I think we've beat the point into the ground by now, I'll close this section with a quote from Ralph Reed, a conservative Christian activist and head of Trump's religious advisory board during the 2016 campaign. I believe this is a different read than the prior read that we've talked about in this episode. I had to go back and check, and I don't think they're the same read. I can't remember. Um, Reed said that he was disappointed by the, quote, inappropriate comments, but, quote, People of faith are voting on issues like who will protect unborn life, defend religious freedom, grow the economy, appoint conservative judges, and oppose the Iran nuclear deal. Clinton's corrupt use of her office to raise funds from foreign governments and corporations and her reckless and irresponsible handling of classified material on her homebrewed email server, endangering U.S. national security, that will drive the evangelical vote. It is so hard for me to get through that because it's a statement I think that hasn't aged too well in light of Trump's presidency and the actual actions that he has taken because I think it's fairly, I think it's fairly rote at this point to demonstrate how the (laughs) Trump presidency (laughs) compromised all of these things that the evangelical voter was worried about. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He, with with the exception of maybe allowing evangelicals to practice the religion in a more um, aggressive way, which is to say to 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 like run businesses and force the employees to abide by the moral beliefs of an evangelical owner or CEO, right? Stuff like that, right? Which is what religious freedom means, uh, quote unquote. Um, with with maybe that exception, 
I think you can pretty easily demonstrate that all of the other things are worse now than they were before his presidency. Yeah. Oh, we got we also got to give him the conservative judges. He did. Okay. Fair. Very good point. That was probably the number one goal, and we didn't talk about it too much, but it comes up over and over and over again. The campaign to get conservative judges on every level of mm-hmm. the courts, not just the Supreme Court, which he absolutely, like, I mean, A plus, I guess. He yeah. knocked that one out of the park. The The court is going to be barring some incredibly right disruptive change. Mm-hmm. The court is going to be solidly not right-leaning, but like deep in the right camp <laughs> Yes, um, for a generation. Yes. I would say probably 40 years conservatively. Yeah, because all of Trump's appointees were um, very notably in the prime of their lives. Yeah. So that said, this last little section where I've made these bold claims mm-hmm. will probably upset a lot of supporters of Trump if I mean, if they made it this far in the podcast, um, because all of these storylines, all of those points that I made are easily cast aside as the machinations of the media or the deep state, although we don't hear that one quite as much anymore. Um, but there's no trust. And it, it's just like it, it's a sign of how much damage has been done to the public's faith in our reporting, in our government. In, in our law enforcement apparatus writ large. Yeah. It's, uh, it's bleak. It's bleak. Okay, so. So let's talk about good news. Well, I know, right? So, I mean, I, I don't know if we need to plug the website again, but before we close out and get to the good news, I did want to address a comment that I got from a listener directly um, who I, I And I haven't responded directly to them yet because I recognize that they were coming from a very defensive place. Um, they are a person who is, is very firmly entrenched in this community and still in good faith and with open ears listens to our show, uh, which I'm incredibly grateful for. And I... Very thankful for. Um, yes. And I am... not trying to chase you away. No. And I, I respect the courage that it took to listen to especially this series with as open a mind as I know that he is coming to the episodes with. So I want to get that out of the way. But um, his response to our last episode was to ask me, well, why then should Christians have voted for Clinton? And I'm not going to even attempt to answer that question because that's not, uh, that's not the point of this series. But what I want to address is the incredible urge that I think we all have when we feel called out by something, or when we feel our perspective being challenged, to want to play the the if-then, to want to play the binary, right? Well, if we weren't supposed to vote for Trump, why should we have voted for Clinton? And I want you to tell me why, why we should vote for Democrats or why Christians should vote for Clinton, because you're saying we shouldn't have voted for Trump. So I want to make it very clear. We're not saying who should or should not have done anything. There are no shoulds in this conversation. What we want to point out, and that I think that the defensiveness that we're hearing from a lot of people um, makes very clear, is that a lot of people are living in their own state of should. And their knee-jerk response is to feel attacked or accused 
by our connection between Trumpism and white nationalism and Christian nationalism and these these narratives. And so if that's you, please hear me say that we're not saying you should have voted for Clinton. We're not saying you should have voted for Trump. We're not telling you how you should have voted. But we're asking you to take a second and take a step back and examine why you feel defensive about us pointing these things out. Yeah. I mean, do we want to plug the website yeah. again? Let us know what you think. Firesidebreakdowns.com. Yeah. Um, it's and all there. like, again, we never set out with the, uh, I just want to, I just want to piggyback off of Robin here. Piggyback it. Um, you know, we never set out to offend anybody or to attack anybody. It's not our goal. Um, if you are offended, if you want to give us a piece of your mind, it's right there on firesidebreakdowns.com. Yeah. We'll read it. Can't promise we'll always respond because we do prioritize well-reasoned arguments <laughs> over personal attacks. So right? if you just come after us, well, then we'll probably put, throw it in the bin. But, you know, let us let us know what you think. We, we do want to have real conversations. And also don't fall for the trap of a false dichotomy. It's not just Trump. Right. Or Clinton or Trump or Biden. It's never a false dichotomy. You always have more choices than that. So consider that. Let's talk about the good news. So uh, first, let's talk about Corrine Jean-Pierre. That's Corrine. That's what I was looking at. It might be Corrine Jean-Pierre, but I'm pretty sure it's Corrine Jean-Pierre. Yeah, I was looking to see if it was Corrine or Corrini. It's a good question. I'm going with my gut on this one. I I haven't looked it up. Um, she is set to become the White House first black press secretary. Jean-Pierre has been uh, the current press secretary, Jen Psaki's deputy, since the start of the administration. Not only will she be the first black press secretary in White House history, she will also be the first openly gay person in this high-profile role, speaking for both the president and the U.S. government in press briefings that are watched by the world. This is... She did misspeak here. The correct correct phrase is this is an historic moment, but she said, this is a historic moment and it's not lost on me. I understand how important it is for so many people out there, so many different communities that I stand on their shoulders and I have been throughout my career. Jean-Pierre was raised in New York, but born in Martinique and went to Columbia University. Throughout her career, she has bounced between democratic political campaigns and left-leaning organizations. Jean-Pierre came to the Biden team from the progressive organization Mm MoveOn.org, where she was a top communication staffer. So she has a uh, pretty stacked resume coming into the the role. She was also a regular on MSNBC. She absolutely does. She knows her way around the communications circuit. Yes, I'm I'm, I'm super excited. Yeah, I am too. She's well-liked by the, uh, at least as far as I have read and seen, she's generally well-liked by the, the press core at the White House. So, And that yeah. is a big deal. Like having like good really relationships big with the press core is a big deal. And you saw how contentious relationships could lead to, uh, shall we say, more drama and less information coming from the press secretary over the course of the last few years. Yes. Very cool. Um, also... It is Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And so we want to take a moment to highlight that the first AAPI trade representative to serve in the United States is Catherine Tai. 
She was sworn in on March 18, 2021. A member of the president's cabinet, Ambassador Tai functions as the principal trade advisor, negotiator, and spokesperson on U.S. trade policy. She was confirmed unanimously by the U.S. Senate. No mean feat these days. And then prior to serving in the U.S. trade representative, she spent most of her career in public service, focusing on international economic diplomacy, monitoring, and enforcement. She previously served as Chief Trade Counsel and Trade Subcommittee Staff Director for the House Ways and Means Committee. It's like the very my, powerful committee. Yes. It's actually my favorite committee name because I feel like Ways and Means feels like so old timey. Yeah. yeah. Where where she helped to shape US trade law and negotiation strategies and bilateral and multilateral agreements, including the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement. She also served as the chief counsel for China Trade Enforcement in the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. And then she's practiced law in the private sector, clerked for district judges, taught English, and you typed it out, and I haven't read it. It's Guangzhou. Guangzhou. China. Guangzhou. I love it. Basically, another person with a stacked resume. Like super stacked. Perfect for the job. Yes. Um, And (laughs) probably good good that they have such a a built-up resume because, um, well, she hasn't exactly been dealt the easiest hand. No. Um, But not only has she had to deal with trade relations uh, with uh, Russia and China, uh, you know, up until earlier this year, now, international trade has been completely snarled due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and how that has impacted our international markets and the, the resulting tariffs and, and sanctions is going to be a problem for years to come. So she's got a lot on her hands. She's got that one under control. That said, I'm currently late for something. Got to go spend some time with my lovely wife i'm very excited about robin impressive as always everybody thank you so much for tuning in this week we will be back to you one week from today talking i hopefully the last episode discussing you know what has what motivated uh you know trump voters and and why we've seen this sort of shift uh over the course of the past you know several years with how they act and behave. Yeah, I do want um, to interject and just um, just make the disclaimer now that we are trying to stay very cognizant of the news and what is going on. So uh, we will absolutely interrupt this series if we find that something more important needs to be discussed. If they do release the final decision on the Roe v. Wade and it's not just uh, not just the the draft, we will will address that. Um, But Until that time, deal with the suspense and also take care of each other.